Hello and welcome to the Knowledge of the College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have a very special episode to share with you. I just had a conversation with a very intelligent, bright young woman. Her name is Jennifer Barbosa, and she's running for Congress uh, against Adam Schiff in his district in California. Uh, regardless of where you live or what political leaning you have, I think it's an important conversation. What she's doing is is awesome because she's running as an independent. In this conversation, we talk about her decision to run as an independent, as well as her different policy positions and, and some you know hypothetical solutions for some of the problems facing uh, Californians and Americans. Uh, so I think you're going to love this conversation. Please follow Jen online on Twitter. She's at Team Jen Barbosa, and you can find her website filled with amazing information at barbosaforcongress.com. So without further delay, uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. So please give it up for Jennifer Barbosa. Hey, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, I'm super excited for your campaign because I live in your district and I notice that you're running as an independent, which uh, I think is very interesting. And I'd love to start with that and find out sort of, first off, what motivated you to run for office and why choose independent? Okay. Well, a number of things motivated me to run for office, specifically this seat. And um, basically, I feel like things have really come to a head with our current representative, Adam Schiff. He's, um, he's habitually dishonest, in my opinion. And he's, he's spreading information that he knows is not accurate. And it's divisive. It's turning, um, you know, family member against family member, neighbor against neighbor, Coworker against coworker, and it's not productive and positive for um, our district or for our country. Um, why I chose to run as independent? I've been studying the demographics and the voter turnout for the last few election cycles, and for a number of reasons, Republicans are getting fewer and fewer votes in this district. Um, in the last election cycle, the Republican candidate he got about 22% of the vote. And so that basically that's because we only have about 22% registered Republicans here. So even if you get 100% voter turnout of Republicans on election day, you still lose as a Republican. Also, you don't have the support, the financial support of the the RNC, if you run as a Republican in this district, they don't want to put money into uh, an, a campaign that they feel has no chance. And they really do feel a Republican has no chance here. And I agree with them because, you know, Republicans try every time they lose. So if you run as an independent, 
you can possibly get those 70,000 registered Republicans in the district if you campaign really hard, plus some of the 120,000 registered independents. Now, you need somewhere around 120, 150,000 votes to win. And that makes you really competitive with the 220,000 registered Democrats in the district. So that's why I'm running as independent as opposed to Republican. There are a few other reasons. Um, for example, and interrupt me anytime. I've been talking for about five minutes straight. No, please, um, please go ahead. Um, also, I don't, I, I, I'm an independent person as are 120,000 registered voters in my district. I don't, I like the idea of not ascribing to a particular political party and, and choosing as you go and not having to adhere to their tenets in order to get their support. I'm glad you have that stance because, and I think more and more Americans are starting to turn that way as well, because it seems like with the two party system is sort of turned into, if you support this side or that side, you have to support every single thing down the ticket that mm -hmm supports and you find a lot of you know contradictions in in the you know party stances on different things and mm -hmm. I think it's a, a breath of fresh air and I think like uh, in recent like the last election you saw a lot of big surge for independent candidates and, and libertarian candidates and people sort of thinking outside the box and it seems even now looking at the you know the democratic debates and stuff people are mostly excited about the candidates that are coming from sort of outside the political arena, outside of the standard way of thinking. So I, I'm, you know, I'm really dying to see how your campaign evolves here. Mm -hmm. Well, we're doing, we're really taking the old fashioned grassroots approach to it. I've just raised a few thousand dollars. And with that, I've put up a website. Um, I printed some flyers and I'm going door to door and I've got some volunteers doing phone banking. And so I, like in the last week, I've hit almost a thousand doors just myself, and people are really receptive. I mean, just just yesterday, it was strange. I was when I'm knocking on doors in the district. I don't like to ask for donations. I just I would just want their vote. You know, uh, there are other places, other people I can get donations from, but people have asked me in the district, can I please give you money when I'm just trying to get their vote? <laughs> They're really excited to, to have a candidate running against Adam Schiff. And these are Republicans, which tells me that Republicans are open to, to voting for an independent. I make it very clear to them I'm not running on their party ticket, but they, they want to support me. How long has Adam Schiff been in Congress for? We're going on about 19 years now. His, wow. well, his yeah, he was a state representative first for a few years, I think about four years. And then in 2000, he ran for Congress. And I guess he was elected then. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm not sure if his election was then in 2001 or 2000, but it was, about, yeah, it was about 19 years now. And it's an interesting story. The person who he um, unseated was an incumbent, a Republican. And that Republican was responsible for spearheading the impeachment against Bill Clinton. And so Adam Schiff got a lot of his funding and support um, from you know, the Clinton camp, the Clinton supporters, because they, they wanted revenge on, on the people who were responsible for impeaching Clinton. And at that time, it was the most expensive 
campaign of its time. Like they, it was sort of no expense spared. We just want to get rid of Rogan was his name, Rogan, um, and get Schiff in his place to be sort of a, a Clinton mouthpiece. And, and he's been very loyal to that Clinton um, stance, I think, since he's been in office. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I first really learned about Adam Schiff with, you know, sort of the president's attacks on him or, uh, you know, insults against him and his stance on the Russia situation, which was obviously very much a, a you know, protecting the Clinton name and, and mm-hmm. what happened in 2016. And, and I think that's where, you know, this seat, I, I see it being more and more important because it's not only just the vote in Congress, but also just as a, uh, as a democratic representative, that's really clearly tied to the political game, not so much the constituents. Right. And that's a great point because he doesn't live here anymore. He doesn't live in the district. In order to um, represent a particular district, you don't actually have to live in that congressional district. You just have to live in the state. But pretty soon after he was elected, he moved his entire family. He has two children and a wife. He moved them all to Maryland and he raised his children there. He didn't send his children to California schools. He, he sent, the, you know, they graduated from Maryland schools. And that kind of tells me that he, he's not so tied to the district. You know, I like a representative who went, when, who has to drive over the potholes, potholes here, and he has to, you know, see the homeless people here. So he knows what issues are going on here and he cares about it rather than kind of using our district and this seat as a stepping stone to a higher office. Yeah. And from my perspective, I'm like a millennial who moved to LA a few years ago and I imagine there's a lot of people like me and we see that kind of candidate. It's just, it's old news. It's kind of, uh, it's, it's not the kind of person that I want to support because of simply because of those things, you know, they're clearly playing the political game, not involved in the district at all. It's like, why would we continue to vote for this person? Right. Yeah. And I have to say, I, before I got really interested in politics, I got interested, I'd say about five years ago before that I actually voted for him because I didn't know who else to vote for. I didn't, you know, and my friends said, Oh yeah, I met him. He's a nice guy. Um, And he's kind of, he's, gotten reelected based on that he he goes to he goes to events here he come he he does he has a one bedroom apartment here uh you know so we can come back and do fundraising and go to events and uh you know people meet him they think oh he's nice sure we'll vote for him but i think now because he's sort of pushed the envelope a lot in terms of his divisiveness some people are more open to uh considering another candidate Absolutely. Jen, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your personal background. Like how did you, what, what have you done before getting into this race? And, uh, you know, like, have you always been politically inclined or is this something that you've recently developed sort of in the past few years? I just, well, I, I moved to Los Angeles in 2001 and I was not interested in politics so much until I moved to the Hollywood area of Los Angeles about six years ago. Because as soon as I moved to this neighborhood, which is actually, uh, for people who don't live here, you think Hollywood is glamorous, but really, my neighbors call this the barrio, the section of Hollywood I live in. I'm not up in the Hollywood Hills. It's more, it's, it's poor, basically. My neighborhood yeah. is poor. It's mostly immigrants. Um, 
and there's, I just noticed this tremendous disconnect between um, the people and the government, starting with the local government. So when I moved here to Hollywood about six years ago, I got involved in local government and I ran for office in the neighborhood council. I was elected to the neighborhood council and became vice president of that and started focusing a lot on local issues, city council, mayor, elections, ballot measures, that sort of thing. And then when Trump um, you know, hit the stage, then my focus really um, extended to, to federal politics. And so that kind of, um, and that's when, that's when Adam Schiff really got on my radar because that was also around the time of the Benghazi hearings. And I was mm -hmm. watching them on TV and I saw this guy, Adam Schiff, oh, that's my representative. And again, he, he seemed to just be um, a Clinton mouthpiece and it, it bothered me, even though I wasn't, you know, I didn't hate Hillary Clinton at that time, but it, it seemed like our representative was really not representing us. He was representing um, that, that Democrat machine, which is, I think it's past its prime. So, so when, you, when you got involved with the local sort of Hollywood uh, mm -hmm. government, let's say, were, were, was that a full-time gig or were you doing something else in parallel to that? Well, when I also, when I moved to California, I... I, well, I moved here from New York and I were in New York. I worked on documentaries and I produced a talk radio show. So I thought I would do that when I moved out to LA, but I didn't know anyone in the business. Um, so I ended up getting a little work in, in production, but more in front of the camera as an actress. Did, um, done some acting and I still do some acting. I'm a member of the Screen Actors Guild, a little bit of modeling, but not so much. I'm a little old for that. But um, so that's, that's what I've done career-wise up until now, still doing some of that. Um, and then the politics stuff I just got interested in and sort of balancing between the two for the last few years. Got it. Well, you're, you're certainly one of us in the district then. It seems like almost everybody's involved in that industry. So yeah. <laughs> right off the bat, you're a better representative. Thanks. <laughs> so, so, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about policy. Like what, what, where do you see sort of being the differences in, in your policy stance compared to, uh, you know, the democratic stance? Like, like what, what okay. makes you an independent in that way? Well, both sides, both sides say that they believe in border security, but neither is really acting on it. Um, so that's something that I really believe in. We truly need to secure our border and, um, you know, stop, stop uh, positioning ourselves as this, as, you know, righteous, but really work together and, and come to some sort of deal. I mean, Congress has not come to a deal in terms of securing the border and it's, it's awful. It's an atrocity down there from what I hear. Um, let's see. And differences between me and the Democrat party, you say? Yeah. Or, or the Republicans, you know, like what, what, are, what, yeah. Um, well, obviously our district I don't know if, if people who are listening have heard, but we have a tremendous homeless problem in our district. LA has always had one of the highest rates of homelessness in the country, but over the past few years, it's, it's compounded exponentially for a number of reasons. So, you know, there are a number of ways to deal with that. I don't want to just throw more money at the problem. I think, first of all, because we get federal grants and the con congressional representative has some jurisdiction over that, 
we need to do an audit of how that money has been spent because clearly it's not being spent the right way or it's not going to the right people because the problem's only getting worse. And that's something that as a congressional representative, I'd like to, to take charge of. Um, also part of the, what leads into the homeless problem is also the, the what they call the, the opioid crisis or opioid addiction epidemic. Because a lot of these people, 29% of them admit that they have a drug addiction problem, 29% of homeless people. So we have to, again, deal with border security since a lot of drugs come through the border and also find some way to deal with the, this drug crisis that is putting people into a desperate situation where, where, you know, where they'll just live on the street in order to feed their addiction. Those are two huge challenges between illegal immigration and homelessness. And I'm glad that you're mentioning those because I think they're really probably top of the mind for a lot of people who have been in California for a while, just seeing that progress. And I want to mm -hmm. play devil's advocate a little bit to sort of dig deeper mm -hmm. on, you know, where you stand on these things. So like with illegal immigration, the, the, one of the arguments in favor of is that we need these people for our workforce. We need these people for, uh, you know, like they, they stimulate the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do you agree with that? What, what do you, how do you feel about their economic value as, as people? Well, the, I don't agree with that phraseology because it's sort of, it, it sounds almost like slavery. We need these people because they'll work for free under the table and so on and so forth. So I, I, I don't so support that. And I don't know where uh, we have a lack of, I mean, do, are, do we, are we lacking employees here in Los Angeles? Maybe in other districts, but I don't, I don't think we are. I don't, <laughs> we have a high unemployment rate here. So I think that we don't necessarily need more workers, unskilled workers, low-skilled workers. Do you? No, not, I, I feel as if, you know, when I look at the picture, uh, you know, frankly, I see a lot of people who are, you know, of a different, background and they are usually doing a lower skilled job and mm -hmm. uh to me I, I see that they're missing out on paying some of the most the highest tax i pay which is income tax right you know yeah. I, I hear the argument that oh well they pay sales tax i mean sales tax is less than 10 percent where, where the average american really gets hit is on their income tax social security medicare you know in california it's it's taking between state tax, federal taxes, and those programs, taking at least 35% of your paycheck. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sort of, uh, I, I agree with you there. You know, it's, it doesn't seem like, I, I don't buy into the argument that they are stimulating our economy in any way. If anything, I see that they're, they're you know, taking jobs from uh, Americans who would otherwise have, you know, be able to hold those positions. It might be a higher wage job. And then it also, they'd be paying fully into the social security, Medicare, and paying all the taxes that, you know, Americans that are employed and giving their all also have to pay. Right. Yes, I agree. In regards to homelessness. Now I haven't heard, I haven't heard a, a really good argument for this one at all. It seems like one of the biggest problems in California, like something I've never seen before in my life was all these tent cities before I moved out to California. Mm -hmm. I, I never even imagined it was as bad as it really is. Uh, and I saw a tweet of yours the other day that oh, the homelessness in Adam Schiff's district has gone up 40% in the last 
since year? he was elected. So no, since, since he was, he was elected. elected, which was uh, almost 20 years ago, it's gone up 12% in LA County since last year, which is also very bad. Because bad. We've, it, in the last year, we've also gotten $619 million to deal with homelessness. So it shouldn't be going up. And to me, that is the real humanitarian crisis going on. Like that is, that is severe, it's drastic, and it's in everybody's face every single day. Uh, you can't mm -hmm. even walk down the street without encountering a few homeless people now, uh, you know, either asking for money or food. And it's, it's a sad situation, very sad situation. What, how do you feel that, you know, you said that you, you wouldn't just throw money at it. Uh, have you conceived of programs or, or systems to, to help ease this problem? Or, you know, like, does it take going to the root source of the problem? Have you, like, what, what is your... Well, uh, they're, they're not going to the source, yes. Um, but there are a number of causes. And we, you know, it is going to take money to fix it. And that's why I'd like an audit of how the money that we've put into it has been spent because it's pretty vague actually. And we know that a lot of money has been put into the homeless problem to try to address it. And we know that it's not been spent correctly because it's not fixing the problem. So first of all, an audit, and then we can address, you know, then we can fix it from there. So what kind um, of visibility does a regular voter have on that spending as it stands today? What kind of visibility you said? Yeah, like being able to see how those funds are spent. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, the only the only people I know who've really gotten started to get some detailed information about it are people who have who have gone through the records request, the public records request system in California. We have something called uh, is it the Brown Act or any? You can do something called a public request records request in in California to to kind of see how things where, where money's being allocated. And have, have you, you know, dug into those or, or, you know, Somewhere. seen, I haven't, yeah. I haven't personally submitted any records requests, but I've read over other people's and a lot of the money is, um, it goes to nonprofits who then, um, you know, they spend, they, they build buildings. Uh, this is a big issue. They build buildings for where it'll cost like $500,000 per unit for a, a quote unquote affordable housing unit. And then they'll make a little bit of that back in rent. But the 500,000, a lot of the $500,000 that they're getting to build that unit is from a government grant or our tax money. And so that's where the problem lies because a lot of people, you know, even though they might be running a nonprofit, or doing something for quote unquote a public benefit, they're making a lot of money off of it. And a lot of times these contracts are funneled to the friends or the donors of the local or possibly federal politicians. So um, for example, if say, you know, you get a million dollar grant to, to address the homeless crisis and, and people are telling you, well, the homeless crisis is because we don't have enough affordable housing, which by the way, is a bit of a myth. Um, they'll spend, you know, a million dollars on and build two units. Meanwhile, you've got 10 more homeless people hitting the streets over the course of a year. So your homeless population actually rises, even though you've put a million dollars into it. Could, could you tell me about the, the myth of the low income housing? Availability? Yes. Yes. Well, um, I don't know if you've seen there, there's, there's a lot of advertising, a lot of money being put into this campaign 
saying that the reason we have a homeless crisis is because housing is too expensive. Yes, some people are on the street because they can't afford um, the housing, you know, because they used to have a place that was 800 a month, now it's 1600 a month and they're out on the street. That's why some people are out on the street. But to say that we need to build um, apartments for all these homeless people, these people that we see in tents, and then that will fix the homeless problem, that's ridiculous. These people can't, I mean, you've seen these, the people in the tents, they have, they can't afford anything, let alone a, a you know, quote unquote, affordable housing unit. By the, the, those units that they call affordable housing, those are sometimes a thousand a month. Or, or more. There's also, once the unit is built, there's not a lot of oversight in terms of how much they'll, they'll be able to charge. There's a little bit, but not a lot, not a lot of follow-up. So um, to say that, um, you know, we just need to build more housing in order to fix homelessness is ridiculous. And a lot of the people who fund these campaigns saying that we just need to build more units, they're real estate developers who make money off of um, building affordable units because they don't have to pay for them. They're getting government grants. They're getting our, our tax money in order to build them. And the, the politicians are, are happy with that sort of um, cycle because they get donations from real estate developers and the city and the state, they get property taxes from the new real estate developments. So they all win, but we, the citizens, don't. Wow, yeah, that, that seems like, you know, your typical sort of political, uh, you know, behind closed doors deals, you know, funneling the money over to the real estate developers. Um, what, what do you think about just not, ha not allowing homeless people to stay where they are? You know, because that to me mm -hmm. seems like one of the most obvious reasons why it's growing so much is that yes. California doesn't seem to enforce any rules against them. So you have, you probably have homeless people from around the country flocking here because they know it's safe place to, to be homeless. Yes. Um, uh, there was a ninth circuit court ruling. I don't, stop me if you've heard this before a few years ago. Um, and the ninth circuit court extends all the way over to Idaho. So a homeless person in Idaho sued um, in the city of Boise and the court decided um, that the homeless person was in the right when he said that uh, the city cannot tell him that he cannot sleep on the street unless the city provides a homeless, adequate homeless shelters for all the homeless people there. So in essence, um, unless we have enough homeless shelters in Los Angeles to house how many is it now, 59,000 homeless people, we are not allowed to tell them to, that they can't sleep in their tents, according to this Ninth Circuit Court ruling. Some cities in the Ninth Circuit abide by it, that ruling, like Los Angeles. Others, like Burbank or Culver City or Beverly Hills, don't. So, wow. um, that's Yeah, that's what's going on there. And there's a big push on the left, very big movement on the left. Um, people who fund these um, these court cases against, you know, people who fund help fund a homeless person when they want to sue a city. Um, they also are big advocates for allowing tents um, on the city if 
allowing tents on the sidewalk. If um, uh, the police come to, to tell them that they have to move or they try to arrest them or anything, these activists will be out there with their cameras. They will file a lawsuit. They'll you know, do whatever they have to do to um, stop that from happening and to, and to allow the tents to exist on the sidewalk. That just is so interesting to me how anyone could take that stance if you live in that neighborhood and you're paying, you know, you're, you're a working citizen and you're, you know, supporting yourself with rent in a place that you're living in, allowing all the homeless people around is not really doing much for your own, you know, whether it's if you own a home or real estate or even the, the value of the property that you're renting from. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that's pretty startling. And let's, you know, let's talk about the drug problem going on. Like it, it's, that's the worst thing to me. I have an office down in Hollywood and uh, on the street where my office is, it's every single day walk lunch, seeing multiple people sort of curled up on the ground, clearly on some sort of uh, opioid that, that yeah. is, you know, dominating their life. Have, are you in favor of any policy or push in a, in a direction of assisting these people with their drug problem? Oh gosh, yes. I mean, they, they obviously need help. They're basically incapacitated. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the rehabilitation program is for a person on these kinds of drugs, but um, we need to get some of that here because um, there are definitely some very, very sick people who cannot take care of themselves. They're, I mean, sometimes I, you know, you can't tell if someone's just mentally ill or they're strung out on something, or maybe, you know, maybe they have permanent brain damage. They obviously have physical damage. I saw, it sounds like we're kind of in the same area. I was walking on, on Gower Street not long ago, and this man was sitting out on a sidewalk and he pulled his hoodie off and he had these abscesses in his head. It was just you know, like disease, people are diseased. They need, they need help, whether they, it's their fault that they got there or not. They obviously need help. They can't take care of themselves. They're a danger to themselves and and us. It's such a sad situation. Yeah. Poor hygiene. No, Mm -hmm. nobody taking care of them. Nobody, uh, you, you know, like they're the same people that want them to have the right to live on the sidewalk, you know, are, you know, are allowing these conditions to persist, you know, cause it's, yeah. you allow people to live outside in, in, in an unsanitary place or in an unsafe place. It's, it's definitely not going to make their lives any better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, that's what I think, honestly, for, for your perspective, if, if we uh, are able to come up with some solutions for the homeless crisis, something that, you know, could be implemented that I think is going to really strike a chord with anybody who is on the fence about their vote in the Los Angeles area. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Cause we see it now. You don't actually have it as much up in Burbank as Glendale. Cause like I said, they don't abide by that ninth, ninth circuit court ruling as strongly as Los Angeles does Los Angeles. But so I wonder if um, the homelessness issue will strike a chord as much with Burbank and Glendale. For your listeners, the the 28th Congressional District includes Hollywood, West Hollywood, Glendale, Burbank, Pasadena. So it's a few different cities with different regulations. So homelessness is not um, the same intensity in all areas of the district. Yeah, certainly. And and even even in Burbank, though, I've been there for three years, uh, you know, consistently. And and 
while they don't allow the tents to be popped up, they sort of allow, there's probably a dozen regular homeless people that, that float around the streets and you can tell that, uh, you know, people feed them, people, uh, will buy the meals and things, but, uh, there has been more and more over the past few years that sort of become regulars in the area. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if, if you've given any thought to, universal basic income as a potential solution to this problem. You know, it's something that has a lot of people excited on, on, you know, more of the democratic side with Andrew Yang. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you considered this policy and, and, you know, if it would work or not, what's your philosophy on it? Universal basic income for these people, specifically for these people who we're, see- we're seeing, you know, um, well, for, for people who, are deathly ill, like the ones we were just talking about a minute ago, I don't think that handing them $1,000 is going to fix their problem. I think that $1,000 worth of healthcare would, would go further. Um, uh, $1,000, uh, we're talking, he says his uh, proposal is $1,000 a month, correct? Yeah, $1,000 a month for anyone over the age of 18. I think he calls it the freedom dividend. And yeah. anyone over the age of 18, I think you'd have to opt out of some other uh, government programs, but essentially it'd be a thousand dollars at your discretion, do whatever you want with it. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a great stimulus, uh, for the economy. Uh, I, I, I know I did read about from whence he would get this thousand dollars, but I don't remember. And, and that's obviously my first question is because, you know, nothing's free. Where did he say it would come from the thousand dollars? I think it would be, honestly, I, I actually don't have an idea of where, specifically it's coming from, but I believe it's some sort of trade with existing programs. Uh huh. So if people opted out of some form of social security or, or Medicare in favor of this, like he cl- essentially his claim is that he'd be able to do it with the same expenses that we have now without raising taxes, which to me seems uh-huh. like, you know, it seems like but, a pretty slippery slope. Gonna, you know? Yeah. You, that, I mean, you can come around good. and say, I'm offering $2,000, you know, and it's like, oh, look at Jen's right. got $2,000 for me. And, and we're, you know, Medicare or, and uh, Social Security, they're running out. We don't have enough money in those pots to continue. Well, if you believe what Republicans say, if you believe Democrats, then we do. So I guess it just depends on who you believe. Yeah, it depends on what movie you're watching, whether you believe like, hey, if other countries can do it, we can do it too. Or if you trust the fact that, you know, I mean, frankly, with my generation, I think a lot of millennials understand that there's not a chance we're going to get any social security. I I mean, you you look at the, uh, I think the numbers of social security when it was first created, it was you know, the, the average life expectancy was something like 60 years old. And of course you start receiving social security around 65. And in addition to that, it was 40 people paying into the system for every one person benefiting from it. And the last time I saw these statistics, it must've been like five years ago, uh, it had gotten down to two people paying into it for every one person benefiting from it. So it's the, just our population and our demographics are changing in a way where, uh, a huge portion of our population are getting old enough to receive the benefits of social security and they all want to retire around 65 because that's sort of what they've been geared to do. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's not really a sustainable course of action if they plan on living off social security and having uh, millennials who are, you know, crippled with their own debt, whether it's credit cards or student loans, 
uh, also paying a considerable portion of their income into these programs that are already not going to support us in our retirement age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't want to take money out of social security. Um, I just wouldn't want to. Um, but you did mention student loans, and I read of a, a great proposal, which would be to for colleges endowments to help pay off student loans, and I think that's something worth looking into. I agree. I mean, I I just found out this year that colleges don't also don't pay any taxes, which is mm-hmm. amazing to me, uh, mm-hmm. because you know how big their endowments can be. Like Harvard, I think you know is the largest endowment. It's it's unbelievably huge and the fact that they don't pay taxes is also pretty amazing given the mm-hmm. circumstances so many americans crippled by the student loan debt i mean this is the knowledge without college podcast <laughs> you know mm-hmm. i'm not not really in favor of the existing uh, academic system uh, you know I, I essentially chose to opt out of it myself and, and just listen to podcasts and go on the internet to learn for free instead of uh you know following you know sort of the rest of you know, my family and friends into, you know, a debt trap with, with education. And, and this is, you know, sort of led me in a position of wondering sort of what, what kind of policies work and what I see out of a lot of politicians in California is they take the empathetic approach, you know, which seems to really strike a chord with Democrats where they're uh, mostly focused on the lifestyle and the conditions of, of immigrants and, and homeless people, but they're not, as focused on like logical solutions. And so, uh, you know, it seems to me that your position gives you a unique opportunity to, to bridge that gap as an independent, you know, try to bridge the gap between effective versus, you know, compassionate policy. Yeah. And if the last uh, special election was any indication, it seems that um, voters are waking up a little bit, voters in LA and, and, maybe, you know, thinking, we, well, we can't just vote f- empathically, we have to vote logically too, uh, because we just had an election that would vote to raise our taxes yet again, just a small amount. And um, it was a ballot measure. I think they said that the money would go to, um, you know, buy school books for children. They always, they always do something to tug at your heartstrings, but it was voted down, surprisingly. And usually LA votes in favor of that, but this time they voted against it. And that's, I, I stopped voting for higher taxes a few years ago. And I think that's a, a good step forward. Also, I don't know if you've heard, there's a, um, a movement to recall Eric Garcetti. And I think that will help. I'm going to go door to door and help get signatures for that because you need about uh, 300,000 signatures or something. So I'm going to, uh, help with that while I'm campaigning for my own campaign. And I think that will help bring awareness um, to voters who are sort of on the fence or who just automatically vote Democrat or vote liberal in the past. So, so with your uh, position as an independent, does, does that essentially force you to rely on small donors, donors as opposed to receiving any funding from one of the major parties? Yes, but I would have had to rely on small donors anyway because the major parties don't fund. Um, uh, well, the major party would only fund uh, Adam Schiff if I were running as a Democrat, and the Republican Party would not fund a Republican in this district because they know that a Republican is not going to win. And that we see that in all, all the surrounding districts, in Maxine Waters' district, in Ted Lou's district, they know, and they're right. And also, you know, they have they have a lot of money, but they still their funds are limited, and they want to focus on 
purple districts, for example, perhaps the, the district that Katie Hill won. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's just north of us. Um, she took it, she's a, a, a Democrat. She took it from a Republican in the last district, but it's possible that a Republican could win that one back over in 2020. And also the, the party needs to focus on Senate seats and keeping the Senate. So I, you know, even if I were Republican, I would still rely on uh, individual donors rather than the party. Have you considered bridging uh, some connections with other candidates doing a similar mission as you? Because uh, like Omar Navarro, for instance, running against Maxine Waters seems like very much in uh, sort of similar to you in the way that you're, you're going up against these longtime Democrat seats. Yes, I, I, I know Omar and um, I helped with his campaign a little and learned a lot about, how, you know, just basics about how to start a campaign and how to run a campaign and how not to run a campaign. And um, it, I'd say that he, he, uh, he's part of the reason I got the idea to run as an independent. And so, uh, yeah, I'm very open to working with other candidates. I don't want to um, attach myself too much to someone who's sort of branded as, as right, far right because that will only alienate voters in my district. If just mathematically, I have to attract liberal voters and I can't just rely on, on conservatives. But um, in terms of working with other candidates, I'd love to. Yeah, I, I, I see it from you know, the direction where you're both outsider candidates, but for sure, I, I know it's, it would be a, essentially impossible battle to run as a Republican in, 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 this, uh, in this district. Where, where do yeah. you see some of your... Uh, policies, you know, leaning left? Um, well, uh, I'd say I'm a little more compassionate towards the, the homeless than perhaps someone in middle America who, said, who would say, just lock them all up. Um, not that there aren't times when I want to just lock them up, but A, that's not going to fly here. And B, you know, B, because we, we see them, you know, we look in their eyes, we, we have to, I don't know, just more compassionate that way. Um, I know that President Trump uh, campaigned on this issue of we're, we're going to deport DACA recipients and their families. Meanwhile, he has really deported fewer people than Obama. Um, so I'm not even going to try to say that we should, you know, deport DACA recipients. A, it's not going to happen. And B, that's also not going to fly here in this district. Um, let's see. What else is there? More left wing. You tell me. <laughs> What's your stance on, on guns? So that's one that comes up uh, pretty uh -huh. regularly. Yeah, that's a tough one. I'm trying to, trying to stay away from it um, because I know, I mean, I know the district here is more in favor of gun control. Um, you know, someone asked me, do you support the Second Amendment? I said, sir, I support all the amendments. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, you know I, I believe in all the amendments and... Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> how about uh, on the topic of, and this is fun, just going quickly through these, um, but how do you feel about the recent like revelations with Google and sort of tech censorship? Oh, I'm definitely opposed to censorship. And um, as a creative person like you here out in Hollywood, I've always been opposed to censorship of any kind, um, whether it's politically motivated or artistic or anything like that. I I actually would like to see a breakup of big monopolies like Google 
and um, who else? I mean, Google's the big one that comes to mind, which yeah, might Google. go against conservative principles, but I think they've demonstrated that they are a monopoly. Facebook is another one. They, they're monopolies. There's no way around that. I mean, smaller monopolies have been broken up, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, you know, even now more than ever, uh, given, you know, how much of a, how much control they ho have over everybody's lives and what we see uh, on our phones and on our computers and everything, you know, they actually can sway an election. So that's, Absolutely. you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a monopoly that not only do they have a lot of power and unified power, but it's also one that's very threatening to democracy. Uh-huh. Yes, I agree. Um, so, and you, you would advocate breaking them up because that's something that I haven't thought through and I don't have a good model of thinking through is, is does that even fix the problem or do they just need to be more regulated? Well, yeah, you know, that's an easy word to throw out. I guess I, I, you know, like Bernie, break up big banks, but what does that actually mean? So, um, yeah, I do have to think that through more. There are a lot of, um, there are a lot of very, a lot of different proposals. Um, sure, I guess regulating them more is another way to go about it. Is that well, what you see I, is more? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. One, one idea I heard recently, and, you know, I, I try to keep my ear to the ground on, on both sides, uh, on every policy. Uh, and one thing that I heard from, uh, the Dilbert creator, Scott Adams, I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with him. Sure. Uh, he talked about, he, or believes that we need a social media court, something like a, a part of the U S court system should be focused entirely on, you know, applying the constitution to social media platforms. But isn't the idea of a social media court antithetical to the constitution? Uh, you know, I, I think there's definitely some, some conflicts there, you know, like, uh, you know, from, a from one perspective, you sell me on it. What else? So the say? part that I'm sold on is, is, you know, essentially there needs to be some more transparency on what governs their decision-making. So whether it's making their algorithms public and one of the things that he mentioned was having like extreme fines for like using an algorithm other than the one that's public because it's really the ambiguity around what gets somebody banned, right? Like mm -hmm. what kind of, what is their, their credentials or what, what is their, uh, what's their standards for banning somebody? Because it seems inconsistent when you look on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, who they decide to ban. If you look at everybody who's been kicked off the platforms, it seems inconsistent. Uh, and right. It's, it's sort of a, so in one way, making their, their algorithms transparent in another way, you know, enforcing, you know, or, or having a way to interpret the, the first amendment or freedom of speech on those platforms and determining what is allowed to be said, what's not allowed to be said. And I, I think it's an idea that's still very, very uh, vague, not, you know, I, I don't have all the details on it, but it's something that I, I thought was interesting because it's at least a method of sticking with our values in the constitution and, and applying those values to, you know, this whole new world that we have, which is our digital footprints and our, our social media platforms. You know, it used to just be people in the town square and now it's evolved into the town square is now these large platforms that exist almost as if they're their own entities of their own cities. And if you get mm -hmm. kicked inside the city walls, you're, you know, it, you don't always have a way to ever get back in there. There's no forgiveness. Um, there's no, uh, you know, it's an alienating and, you know, again, it's, it's something that is 
undemocratic in the sense that it could it could sway the election if if enough of these voices are are silenced. Yeah. Yeah. And the alternative would be for the social media companies if they rejected the system, the court system would be would be would be for them to say no, we're a private company and then they'd have to buy, abide by the same rules as a private company, which would mean that they what what privileges would they lose? I mean, they are a private company, but they would, would they lose, like, do they get government grants now? Like, what would they lose if they said, no, we don't want to be a part of that public system? Well, that, that's where I see, you know, at some level, it's going to have to be regulated. You mm-hmm. know, like, like the, the administration in power today, you know, has a, definitely has an interest in making sure that the, the you know, democracy stays intact and that, the, these companies don't have that much sway over the elections. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I don't think there is a perfect solution yet, but I, I'm just curious to see what your thoughts on it are, because I, I think it is one of those really challenging things where even libertarians are saying, you know, they may need to be regulated, even though they're a private business. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I like it. I, I feel like I, I could ask you questions all day because I'd love to, you know, I think the position that you're taking right now is one that uh, is going going to continue to become more and more popular. I think I truly believe that uh, you know millennials and younger people are are not as tied to the two party system as uh, our parents were uh, mm-hmm. and as generations before us were. So, uh, you know, I, I I think what you're doing is very unique, and that's why I'd love to see sort of where you bridge the gap. Because again, with where we're at politically, there's never been such a wide divide, you know, like you can't even walk down the street in Hollywood, uh, you know, wearing like a make America great again hat without getting crazy looks as if you're out of your mind, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, the same goes in a, in a lot of conservative areas. You, you can't really, uh, if you're openly liberal or democratic, you're going, you're probably going to get a lot of the same looks. So, so I just want to learn more about where you see, you know, your position being able to bridge these two sides together and, and hopefully create well, some policy. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's part of my platform. I've been trying to think of a slogan and it's so far I've come up with something along the lines of um, putting the people before partisanism. Um, you know, we've all heard of country before party, but sort of kind of getting past the, this sort of this very divisive um, time that we're in and, and remembering that there are other issues, really actually important issues that a, a congressional representative can deal with. It doesn't always have to be about um, Russia. <laughs> yeah, the Russian one is so funny to me because Adam Schiff held on to it longer than anybody, right? He's uh, still holding. He's still, he's still holding. holding. Yeah. And, and even like I have, you know, I'm from Massachusetts, like almost everyone in my family is, is very liberal. And even they see, uh, even even they see that and are sort of tired of it. So I, I, I are they? I, so tell me more about like, do you have these discussions with them? Because I've tr- my mother, uh, she loves Adam Schiff, <laughs> and I. Um, so I'd love to know, like, what do your do? Do they admit? Like, I mean, your family? Do they haven't? Yeah. What do they see? Do they admit that they see it, or you just see it in their eyes, or what's going on? Uh, well, I I think. When when I talked to them about it, because, you know, when it, when the whole Mueller report came out and essentially there were no more arrests to be made and there were no, you know, the, the smoking gun was not found. There was not uh, the Russia thing. And then you could see the news now. They don't talk about it nearly as much. You know, it used to be every single day. 
And so uh, I've gotten them to at least admit that, you know, wasn't what they had anticipated it to be. And but are they like, aha, but it's obstruction of justice? Are they on Because that's that's how it's going. I, right? I, yeah, I'd say it's it's very similar in that way where they're just still very skeptical, you know, and still feel like there's got to be something going on there. And and I try to, you know, explain like it's just it's what the media wants to talk about. It's it's, uh, you know, it's just their framing. It's their the way that they're telling the story makes you you know, think differently about Trump and about his family and whatever they're doing. But uh, yeah, there's still, they, they seem to believe that there's still something there, but it's not as big as it once was. Are they angry that Trump won? Do you think part of it is anger? Like they just want to win? And I, that's I, think, I think a lot of it with Trump is his demeanor, you know, because we're coming from Obama who was whether you like his policies or not, he plays the part. Like if you were to pick an actor to play president, he's really good at that, right? He's really good at his speech, his tone, delivering these messages and, and acting presidential. And so I think for a lot of people, uh, their reality was shattered when someone like Trump with his demeanor and, and casual, uh, you know, style, uh, mm -hmm you know, goes about the presidential business because they, they mostly look at this in a way where they're like, oh, he's a fool. He's, you know, he's crazy. He's, you know, it's this break of, uh, the, you know, the, you hear a lot about how people are concerned that like normalizing Trump's behavior is, is damaging the social fabric of America, mm -hmm. you know, and like our values and stuff. And, uh, and so that's mostly where I, I think people are aggravated. Mm-hmm. I still have trouble understanding, even though it's people in my own family and my own friends, I still have trouble understanding what the anger so much or the denial. But, you know, that's something I'm learning also campaigning, talking to people. I'm learning more about it. I, I think it, it's a psychological thing. It's, it's confirmation bias. And especially when uh, leading up to the 2016 election, I'm sure you've seen the compilation videos of everybody yeah. saying, there was no chance of winning. So when your trusted source of information, the media, uh, you know, the TV news is telling you that Trump has a 0% chance of winning on election day. And then there's this, you know, a, a completely earth shattering election where people actually came out and supported him. Uh, it's, I think it's, it's. Well, at that point, you should no longer trust that source. That, that's, that's where, that's where I'm at, you know, and that's where I think a lot of people in my generation are at as we, I watched the 2016 election go down. I've talked about it on this podcast a couple of times before, but uh, you know, leading into 2016, uh, uh, you know, in, in 2015, I, I was I supported Bernie, you know, and it wasn't until, uh, you know, I wasn't very politically educated. I wasn't that, uh, you know, wasn't a huge reader of it or anything. But as I watched the Democratic primary cycle go around, and I saw what they did to Bernie, you know, it made me lose. 100% of my faith in the Democratic Party picking who I actually wanted, uh, making right. my vote feel like anything. And also, uh, it, it made me have complete doubt in the media and the news because they were avoiding the obvious problem, which was the superdelegates in the Democratic Party, you know, all aligning with Hillary way before their primaries even happened. And it was obvious that that discrepancy was, was what was going to determine the outcome because it was very yeah. close. Uh, you know, popularity wise between Bernie and Hillary, they were very close the whole time, minus the superdelegates. I thought Bernie was going to win in Los Angeles, at least beat, beat uh, Hillary. 
And I'm very curious to see what's going to happen this time around with the superdelegate system, because it doesn't seem like the Democrat Party wants Bernie to win. It doesn't seem like it. So if he, you know, if the voters sort of semi-choose him and then he gets thrown under the bus again or makes some sort of backroom deal, that's only going to help Trump. And I'm very curious to see what's going to happen on the Democrat side. I, I am dying to see. I think it's one of the biggest unanswered questions because, uh, you know, like right now, I feel like the new Bernie, the Bernie of 2020 is Andrew Yang. He's the one that sort of is getting that grassroots support mm-hmm. uh, that people are really just excited about and energized about. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Bernie mm-hmm. sort of lost his fan base uh, after the last time around, or at least betrayed a lot of people. And you watched what happened at that debate with Yang. They were muting his mic. They gave him about two minutes to talk. Whereas, uh, you know, Kamala Harris seems to be more of the media's pick and they let her talk as long as she wanted to. Yeah. It's a month ago. It seemed like it was going to be a Biden Harris ticket, but, um, I don't know. It seems more, I feel like people on the right more are boosting Andrew Yang, which really isn't going to help Andrew Yang. Are people on the left really interested in him? I think it's the population that is young, right? Like it's like the 18 to like 24 year olds that Mm -hmm. like Andrew Yang, because they're the ones that are economically trapped in a you know under the weight of whether it's their student loans credit cards or what or just getting into the uh you know capitalist system and playing the game and succeeding in the game you know they're they're all probably a lot of people i know are cash strapped and so they're probably really resonating with oh a thousand bucks a month sure you know i'd love that you know it's, it seems yeah. a lot different than other democratic policies which are about you know helping different groups of people you know whether it's elderly immigrants homelessness it's like you know how about i get a piece of that you know instead of me just continuing to pay into the system for social security medicare or whatever like give the money well, back to the people. job opportunities just job opportunities i mean that's another thing i'd like to focus on with my campaign though i don't know how to you know i don't want to just say yeah i'm going to create jobs or job opportunities without really knowing how one thing that i better than getting a thousand is is making ten (laughs) thousand absolutely i mean this is a little i don't have any concrete information on how to do this but uh one thing that i could see solving two problems at once is we have a lot of homeless people that need work and we have terrible infrastructure and so and i think those are two things that everybody in la could agree upon so even it's kind of like andrew yang's a thousand dollars a month we i don't even know how we would get there but uh you know, pledging to put homeless people to work to build better infrastructure in California, I think is actually a message that people might agree with because it kills two birds with one stone, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. they've put, um, I believe they use inmates sometimes for uh, street work, I think. I hope no one who does street work is offended by my saying that, but, um, or at least to clean up. Yeah. Clean up. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a uh, it's, Yes, there, there, there's a lot of problems right now. So I, I truly admire your ambition here going for this seat because, and I think it, because of the seat you're running up against, it's, you're like running up hill against with a weight vest on. I think it's a great opportunity for, to introduce a lot of people in the area to a new way of thinking. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, it might look like a weight vest, but honestly, it feels like winning beneath my wings. It's so fun to go up against this guy. He deserves it. 
I love it. So how can, how can people support you more? I mean, uh, I'm sure you need some door knockers. I'm sure you need some. Yeah, absolutely. Where can they find your info? If anyone in the district wants to volunteer, uh, or even outside the district, they can do phone banking. But if they're in the district, we need, you know, we just need to meet voters. We need to get votes. So my um, contact info is on my website. My website is barbosaforcongress.com. It's spelled B-A-R-B-O-S-A. And uh, when I got my first few hundred dollars of campaign donations, I bought a bunch of other domain names. So they all go to my website, but you can also go to shamonshift.com. You can go to defeatadamshift.com. You can go to everybodyhatesshift.com. You can go to (laughs) barbosa2020.com. I couldn't get jenniferbarbosa.com because some other woman named Jennifer Barbosa wanted to charge me like $10,000 for it. Typical. um, Anyway, so uh, there's a link to donate if anyone wants to donate. And there's contact info and some more information about the campaign there. Tell me you got tired of this shift.com. I didn't. I got no more shift.com. <laughs> Do you have any other, if you have any other ideas, I'll get them. I mean, they're only like $20 each. I love um, it. I mean, you definitely have a, a great persuasion play here just with his last name. You know, that, that itself, I think, boosts your numbers significantly. Well, I saw that there was something called a defeat Adam shift pack. So I got that one thinking maybe it would direct people to my website. <laughs> so then the, the pack changed their name to defeat Adam. <laughs> <laughs> but. Oh, wow. Uh, well, yeah, please, everybody listen to this, please, you know, go, go a- ask Jen questions, help out our campaign. I think whether you're a Democrat or Republican, uh, you know, there, we need to bridge the gap. We need more people in the middle, uh, you know, in favor of the constituents over the policy, over the party. And uh, I, th- I think, you know, again, Jennifer, I think what you're doing is, is a really bold move. And I, and I really, you know, admire you for taking it on because it, it's... Well, back at you. I mean, you do this podcast and that's, that's pretty bold too. So congratulations on your success. And I hope you keep doing your, your work. Thank you. And one last thing that just came up, because in addition to this podcast, well, my other, my other thing is, is I run a solar company on the side. Would you vote to extend the, the tax credit for solar in the United States? Um, would it help you? It would help me and 300,000 other Americans who are employed by the solar industry. All right. Well, let's talk about it. I would like to learn more about it. I, I don't, I would not if those, uh, that funding goes to more of those solar robocalls because those are annoying. Oh, I, <laughs> absolutely not. I'm with you. Um, well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. And hopefully, you know, I, I know we're still early on to the election cycle. So maybe in, uh, you know, another few months when things are heating up, I'd love to uh, continue the conversation and sort of see what, what kind of uh, news and updates we have. Sure. Sounds great. Fantastic.
Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.